Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, September 1st, 2014. Today we are reading from the Big Book, and we are in Chapter 10, Two Employers, on page 147, the second paragraph. Today's readers are as follows. Reading the 12 Steps will be... Deanna B. Reading the 12 Traditions will be Anne-Marie M. And reading the text will be Rick B., Stacy W., and Lauren S. The share ID for Sunday, August 31st, is 6804. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Deanna B. to read the OA 12 Steps. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for your service. My name is Deanna B. from Chicago, recovering. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five admitted to God to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, Deanna B. I will now ask Anne-Marie M. to read the OA 12 Traditions. 
Good morning. Thank you. This is Anne-Marie M., Recovered Compulsive Overheater. The 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group content. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name in any related facility or outside enterprise. Thus, problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ certain special workers. Nine, OA, as such, ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible for those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Marie M. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. While we typically read a paragraph or two at a time from the literature for chapters 8, 9, and 10, we are picking up the pace and reading a page or so at a time. Then we stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book in Chapter 10 to Employers, on page 147 with the second paragraph, which begins, There is Another. I will now ask Rick B. to get us started by reading five paragraphs ending in Worthwhile Man a Chance on page 148. Good morning. My name is Rick. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. There is another thing you might wish to do. If your organization is a large one, your junior executives might be provided with this book. You might let them know you have no quarrel with the alcoholics of your organization. These juniors are often in a difficult position. 
men under them are frequently their friends. So for one reason or another, they cover for them, these men, hoping matters will take a turn for the better. They often jeopardize their own positions by trying to help serious drinkers who should have been fired long ago or else given an opportunity to get well. After reading this book, a junior executive can go to such a man and say approximately this, Look here, Ed, do you want to stop drinking or not? You put me on the spot every time you get drunk. It isn't fair to me or the firm. I've been learning something about alcoholism. If you're an alcoholic, you're a mighty sick man. You act like one. The firm wants you to to help you get over it. And if you're interested, there is a way out. If you take it, your past will be forgotten. And the fact that you went away for treatment will not be mentioned. But if you cannot or will not stop drinking, I think you ought to resign. Your junior executive may not agree with the contents of our book. He need not and often should not show it to his alcoholic prospect. But at least he will understand the problem and will no longer be misled by ordinary promises. He will be able to take a position with such a man which is eminently fair and square. He will have no further reason for covering up for an alcoholic employee. It boils down to this. No man should be fired just because he is an alcoholic. If he wants to stop, he should be afforded a real chance. If he cannot or does not want to stop, he should be discharged. The exceptions are few. We think this method of approach will accomplish several things. It will permit the rehabilitation of good men. At the same time, you will feel no reluctance to rid yourself of those who cannot or will not stop. Alcoholism may be causing your organization considerable damage and it's waste of time, men, and reputation. We hope our suggestions will help you plug up this sometimes serious leak. We think we are sensible when we urge that you stop this waste and give your worthwhile man a chance. Well, these paragraphs um, are trying to educate the employer about the seriousness of the disease and the ability to arrest the disease and to, you know, recover. And there's a lot of prejudice out there. There's a lot of prejudice with alcoholics, but there's, there's probably a different uh, type of prejudice with compulsive overeaters. I think um, nowadays people do understand that alcoholism is a disease and addiction is a disease and needs treatment. But I don't know if people understand that about food and eating disorders. I think people are more often of the mindset of just pull yourself away from the table or just do it. And they they probably don't for a great to a greater extent don't accept that it's a disease. So we want uh, the book the authors are encouraging employers to understand alcoholism. And I like what it says, um, no man should be fired just because he's an alcoholic. Well, no no person should be fired just because they're a compulsive overeater. And I've I've seen it. I've seen it in my workplace where people have severe 
problems with food, and usually uh, what we see is people with, that are extremely heavy and may not be able to perform their duties. And it's not so dramatic as an alcoholic not showing up for work or an alcoholic stealing from the company. It's a little different. It's a little more subtle. And it's much harder, I think, to pinpoint where somebody's eating affects their work. We don't know for sure that if they corrected their eating problems that their work would necessarily improve. I think sometimes we're assuming that it would. If somebody's getting drunk and not showing up for work, well, everybody knows that if they don't get drunk, they're going to show up for work. So it's harder It's harder to understand. So it's important that employers understand that there is a program of recovery and that there can be, can be help. But the book also says that you know, this, these employers may have to fire people. They may have to let people go. And I've seen it happen. Um, and I think sometimes when we observe it, we're probably making some kind of a judgment by saying, well, if this person got help, they would be better, a better employee. And it's probably t- true, but like I said, not as clear-cut as the alcoholic. So it's good to know that there are prog- there is a program out there that's very serious about recovery, and it's not just a diet and, and self-help group. And I think most Earth people that don't have addiction think that 12-step groups, especially for food, are just a self-help type, type of thing, kind of like the diet clubs that are out there. And if we can educate them, about the seriousness of the program of recovery that we believe in, it might give them an idea that there is a different kind of help than what we traditionally think of when it comes to food. And it may give them even more hope for somebody that could recover or give them a way to a place to turn rather than just, you know, telling people to behave and be good and put the food down. So this takes a lot of good judgment when we have to when we go to employers and try to tell them about this. Some people just don't understand. Um, I know people I work for don't quite get it, um, and I'm I'm sometimes reluctant to tell them the whole story because they don't. I don't think they often work with as much professionalism as they could. So it's very difficult. But the more an employer knows about recovery, the more likely they're able to help their employee possibly turn them to some help. And if they see an employee getting help and recovering, then they're going to be less likely to take action on that person simply because of their disease. So I'll pass with that. Thanks. Thank you, Rick B. Would anyone like to share on what was read? Rose. Hi, Rose. Good morning, Rebecca. Larissa. Uh, thank you for your Rose, one sec. Is that Larissa? I think so. Go ahead, Rose. Thanks. 
Thanks, Rebecca, so much for your service here this morning. Um, I'm Rose, reco- Rose B., recovered um, food addict, compulsive overeater in New York. Um, I found these paragraphs very potent for myself and my own experience as an employee. I, I never have been an employer. Um, and in this regard, I'll briefly say um, a majority of, uh, not a majority, but a number of my jobs, especially as a young person, was with food, um, working in supermarkets or down on the beach, um, hot dog stand. And uh, that wasn't necessarily by chance. It's where my heart was, so those were the jobs that attracted me. And I stole quite a bit um, in my own eating on the jobs. And um, and then as I got older, when I was in college working in the A&P, um, I stole groceries as well, you know, at night with a, another employee. And thank God, due to the program and going through the steps, um, amends have all been made and um, restitution given for that. But I think of my employers and in the reading that we had here. Um, back then, I had no desire to stop, so if somebody approached me, I, I mean, I would not, they would have been speaking another language to me. But I think what was written here, as it was being read, um, it's, it, it applies, of course, to employers talking to people working for them, but it's the principles of the program coming out to speak to me again. Um, I have, I've had a couple of women, one last night and one this past week, and uh, speak about the difficulty on her job that she has. Um, she's in recovery but struggling and of maintaining the principles, maintaining her program and her abstinence on the job where the relationships are constant. And so, um, you know, it says so clearly um, approaching the person that if you are alcoholic, you are a mighty sick man, on page 147 down the bottom. Um, It's really stating to get at what the facts are, the exact nature. Are you or are you not? And then if you are, the employer here has the opportunity to say, I can offer you help from his own education from this book of being uh, told what what to do and what to offer without having um, holding it against the alcoholic for their past performance, allowing them to go forward only if they are willing to go to any length to recover, to keep their job, um, not for the purpose of keeping the job, but to um, get the help needed admitting that they're an alcoholic. That actually is, um, I was working in a candy store when I came into the program, and, um, and it was my boss, actually, that brought me to OA because he saw me gain about 50 pounds within three months and said, what is wrong with you? And even though his approach was not the approach here in the book, um, God bless his soul, I don't know if he's still alive or not, here I am to tell about it um, 41 years later that um, 
if the employer does speak up and say there's something wrong with you, I was highly insulted and offended, but he then took me to a meeting even though I wasn't up for it, and that began for me a life-saving journey. And thank you for letting me share, and I'll pass. Thank you, Rose B. Was it Larissa who wanted to share next? This is Sarah W. Yes, it was. Hi, Sarah W. You'll go after Larissa. Go ahead, Larissa. Good morning, everyone. My name is Larissa. I'm a grateful recovery from Pulsarita in New York. Um, always love these pages. Um, the, you know, it's it's an invitation to bringing the addict to rigorous honesty. Like, you know, you have a disease, not ground in and of itself to fire someone, but you know, someone trying to get away with stuff instead of actually seeking to be of service of their employer is taking from the corporation instead of bringing to it. And so the junior executives being taught healthy boundaries around their responsibility for that relationship and managing it. Um, and these words always resonate as well as sponsors. It's like, you know, um, if someone wants to get well, they need to know that they're, they have a disease and that there is a solution to that disease, but they have to want it. And um, so, you know, the, the employer's being given very clear-cut direction here for how to not keep enabling and covering up for and uh, allowing the alcoholic to continue to live in their lives and then to really give the alcoholic the, the choice, like, hey, you know, with, with compassion, like, you have a disease, you can either get help for the disease and then we'll be happy to work with you. Or you could choose not to get help for the disease, and then we would prefer if you were to leave. And um, you know, I think back to my disease and what I did with my employers, how um, you know, mid-afternoon I'd become like a sugar-seeking missile who couldn't stay at my desk or focus on my work unless I like, went out and hunted down something to put in my body or the little um, drawer at my desk that like, had a knocker on it and all day long you would hear that knocker hitting into the wood because all day long there'd be stuff I was grazing on, couldn't get through my work day. And I think the, the key way that as compulsive eaters we are stealing from our employers, and I most certainly have stolen food at employees, you know, working at places where there was food, um, or had that sense of entitlement that I had the right to things, like some expense accounts, et cetera, um, because there's such a, that, such a sense of selfish self-centeredness that it's all about me and what I can get not what am I bringing to the table. Um, so I'm very clear that the, the depth of um, not fully showing up, not fully being present because I was thinking about food or thinking about weight or having an upset stomach from something that I had eaten or literally detracting from what my hands or brain could be doing because I was seeking to put food in my body. Um, all of, you know, many ways that I was taking from my employer um, and I think the gift of, you know, being in a recovered state and being aware of the nature of this disease is that we really are taught how to show up in the world in a way that's about what can I bring, what can I contribute, how can I be of maximum usefulness to my employer, to the people they serve, to my coworkers, and not be so wrapped up in what do I get each and every day. Um, I think that's the, the biggest transformation. But Again, the paragraphs to me are just healthy boundaries around bringing people to the awareness of what their responsibility is in sharing with someone who has this disease with compassion and responsibility, not enabling and not um, 
and, and remembering that we can't help people who don't want help and uh, we can't cover for people who don't want help. Um, it's really about bringing it into the light of day and being rigorous on the state. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Larissa. Sarah W. Thank you, Rebecca. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sarah W., Grateful Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Um, I really like what uh, the, the previous two people share, shared, and um, I, I just wanted to add a couple of thoughts, and one of them is that, you know, the book is really a great uh, place for direction for, for employers. Whether or not they're willing to utilize the book is another uh, another story, but it does talk about that, and I think that's a um, that's a wonderful way. You know, we had, um, at my place of, of um, employment, we had a, a young woman who was drinking um, alcoholically, and... Um, you know, I work in the healthcare field, uh, going into people's homes, patients' homes, and it was concerning because, um, you know, first of all, um, you know, the safety of the patients, uh, foremost, um, and then also um, her safety, and then on top of it, you know, the reputation of the of the company. So. Um, she had come in one day and she was drunk, overtly so, uh, into a meeting that we had and um, probably wasn't the right time, but I did pull her aside and, um, uh, you know, told her I was really concerned about her. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, is most important for me to remember, whether it be somebody that's drinking alcoholically um, or if it's a compulsive overeater that's eating actively, is that when we are um, when we are in the midst of our addiction, we are, um, and especially if we're not working steps, uh, whether we're in the midst of our addiction or not, if we're not working steps, because to me the steps are the key. Um, you know, not only is there uh, dishonesty, but there's um, there's such immaturity, there's such a lack of maturity and a lack of uh, being willing to look at ourselves and uh, lack of responsibility. And, um, you know, as, as was stated, you know, that, that complete um, selfishness and, and um, you know, like almost tunnel vision, we have no knowledge of other people around us. And I can say that because I've been there, but, you know, willingness is a one-person job. I mean, no one's going to get sober or get help unless they're truly at a place where they're, They've decided that um, you know, they can't go on like this, you know, and it talks about it all over the book. You know, we have to get to the place where we're uncomfortable. And sometimes with the idea that a job may be lost, that could be enough impetus to get a person to want to do something about it. But often we have to find our own bottom. You know, a lot of times people will go on, as they say, to the very bitter end, and um, it's hard to watch, you know, I think um, especially we have the compassion because we've been there. We know how painful it is to be in the midst of addiction. It's hard to watch somebody uh, continue to be self-destructive. But on the other side of it, you know, standing in someone's way and stopping their drinking or thinking that I'm going to stop it, is, there's a lot of ego on my part. And, um, you know, the worst thing that we can do is, 
is sin is someone's way of someone's recovery or someone's drinking in some senses because we don't allow them to hit a bottom. So, you know, I was just thinking that, and I'm so grateful today to, to be going to the to the employers. Um, it would not be my favorite part of the book, but it definitely has a lot of lessons to be learned, and um, I am grateful for that. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah W. Would anyone else like to share before we move on? Judy. Sally. Did I hear Judy and Sally? Yes. Okay, Judy and then Sally. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Visionaries. This is Judy F., Recover Compulsive Overeater from Massachusetts. Um, what I liked about um, in this reading, they they um, say don't don't give the big book to prospective um, alcoholic and that's what I've learned that um, and we've been taught in this book that only another compulsive reader only another alcoholic can help can, um, help them help the alcoholic or compulsive reader someone who doesn't have this problem truly doesn't understand I mean unless I lived through all the misery and you know trying to stop once I started and then not start, you know, trying not to start when I've stopped and over and over and over binging and then saying, why did I do it? I'm not going to do it today. And waking up and saying, I'm not going to do it today. And then I picked it up. Only someone who's lived that life can truly understand. And more importantly, only someone who has the solution, who has worked the steps, who has had a spiritual awakening sufficient enough to um, free us of the compulsive overeating, of the insanity. So given that book um, and not have, and we just can't, the person cannot help another, help a compulsive reader without being a compulsive reader. And that is so true when I look back. And I have been an employer of um, addicts um, and uh, compulsive overeater. And I've been an employee many, many times. Um, and I was not ready, um, and people did try to help me. And even after going to one treatment center, getting back out, and if they had asked me, do you really want to stop, I would have had to admit, no, I really don't. I want to be thin. I don't want to have the consequences, but I don't want to stop using the food. So it's so important. This really is a book to follow directions because it's from those alcoholics that know, know the game, know the solution. And um, and only another compulsive overeater can help a compulsive overeater who has the solution, which is a spiritual awakening as a result of working these steps. Thank you. I'll pass. Thank you, Judy F. Sally. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for your service to all of us. I'm Sally, a recovered compulsive overeater in South Jersey, from South Jersey. Um wanted to speak to this paragraph on page 147. In case he does stumble, even once, you will have to decide whether to let him go. You know, as I read this paragraph, I feel like it speaks to me as a sponsor and gives me further instruction. Um, Let me just read it again. In case he does stumble, even once, you will have to decide whether to let him go if you are sure he doesn't mean business. There is no doubt you should discharge him. If, on the contrary, you are sure he is doing his utmost, you may wish to give him another chance. 
but you should feel under no obligation to keep him on for your obligation has been well discharged already. And so when I read these lines, I think as a sponsor, we are often, we struggle with the decision of what do I do here? Do I keep going? You know, what do you do with the person who dives back into the food when you've worked with them? You know, do you, I mean, you have to go back to the beginning because they obviously don't understand the nature and the severity of their illness. But nevertheless, so many of us, we, we feel like we're, you know, we're powerless to help them. Um, of course, when I read, you may wish to give him another chance. I'm always reminded that I happen to have a God who is a God of second chances and third and fourth and 75 and 80 chances. And so I'm always compelled to give them another chance. That's always in my heart is, no, I don't, I don't want to give up on you. And as long as you don't quit on you, I won't quit on you. That's my motto. But I'm still reminded of page 96 at the top of the page where it tells us about eight lines down. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny someone, some other alcoholic, an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowships failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. We know that's Bill. He often says that if he had continued to work on them. And that is the key word there for me, because I don't believe that we are meant to work on anyone. We are to work with them. And if they're not ready to work with us, then we are wasting our time. So it says, he often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. I love the fact that they use that word chance also on 96 and here on page 147 and and we're heading to 148 where they use the word again chance. And many of us, we needed many, many chances. God knows in my 31 years in, in OA, I have had many, many chances with many, many sponsors. And so it does take some real great wisdom to, and, and more than anything, it takes that sponsee knowing that they really want this, that those key words, you know, if on the contrary you are sure he is doing his utmost. So I've said a lot. Thanks for letting me share with that iPad. Thank you, Sally. Let's move on with Stacy W. Please continue the reading with the next five paragraphs, Stacy, beginning at the bottom of page 148 with The Other Day, reading to the end of the chapter on page 150. Good morning. This is Stacy, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. The other day, an approach was made to the vice president of a large industrial concern. He remarked, I'm mighty glad you fellows got over your drinking, but the policy of this company is not to interfere with the habits of our employees. If a man drinks so much that his job suffers, we fire him. I don't see how you can be of any help to us, for, as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problem. The same company spends millions for research every year. Their cost of production is figured to a fine decimal point. They have recreational facilities. There is a company insurance. There is a real interest, both humanitarian and business, in the well-being of employees. But alcoholism, well, they just don't believe they have that. Perhaps this is a typical attitude. We who have collectively seen a great deal of business life, at least from the alcoholic angle, had to smile at this gentleman's sincere opinion. He might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization a year. That company may harbor many actual or potential alcoholics, 
We believe that managers of large enterprises often have little idea how prevalent this problem is. Even if you feel your organization has no alcoholic problem, it might pay to take another look down the line. You may make some interesting discoveries. Of course, this chapter refers to alcoholics, sick people, deranged men. What our friend, the vice president, had in mind was the habitual or whoopee drinker. As to them, his policy is undoubtedly sound, but he does not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. It is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose. Far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying day. Today I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen, but why not? They have a new attitude and they have been saved from a living death. I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. Um, and I just wanted to add that um, I have so appreciated reading to employers with this group. I have never read it so in-depth, and it has been so eye-opening and amazing. Um, I have, was definitely one of those that they just talk about in the last couple paragraphs. Um, I, I've owed my employer so much and so many amends, and I have recently gone back to that job working. I, I left it for a couple of months this past summer, um, and then I returned with a new attitude um, and a new outlook and, and um, through some 10th and 11th step work, and I've been able to go back and be this employee that they're talking about in the end. And, you know, in earlier in the chapter when it talks about we we work hard and play hard, I mean, that is definitely us. And when when you can get us to be those type of workers, and when we do recover to that point, we can it can be amazing workers. Um, so I've really appreciated hearing this. Um, and then just above where it says, um, the employer says, but alcoholism, well, they just don't believe they have, they have any of that. Um, it just reminds me so much of um, families and, and spouses and, and as it says employers. And yes, you know, just how much um, the employer can, gain by being educated on alcoholism and compulsive overeating as a disease, just um, how much that can benefit everyone all around. And uh, with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Stacy W. Who would like to share on this portion of our reading? Sylvia? And this is Paula following Sylvia? (laughs) I heard Sylvia and Paula. Was there someone else? Susie. Mary C. Mary. Kim. Kim. Did I get everyone? Sylvia, Paula, Suji, Mary, and Kim? Okay. We'll see if we have time. Let's try to stick to mind our time. Sylvia, go ahead. Good morning, everyone. This is Sylvia. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in upstate New York and so happy to be on the line with all of you this morning. And um, 
I am very, very glad that we read this chapter, too. Uh, I was an employee that uh, if you looked at my work, you would think that I was a great employee and I was functional and, you know, I, I provided a lot. Uh, I contributed a lot to my job. But but I also was the person that um, that I was very destructive. I was very divisive on the job. I was, uh, And it was because I wasn't recovered and it was all about me. So therefore, I was very defensive. I was very aggressive. And really, you know, I just put a blender into me, you know, a, a blender into the meetings, and I would just whirl it right up. And I did not know that I was doing that. I felt completely justified. But I do know that before a meeting that I knew was going to be, you know, a, a high-energy meeting, a, a, that it was going to be a meeting that I was emotionally involved in, I just swing by the little mini mart kind on on our on our uh, on the grounds of our company, and I'd have to you know just basically take the equivalent of you know a half pint in order to get my courage up, which meant that I was crazy. I was crazy in these meetings and did a lot of damage. Um, and uh, so uh, when I got recovered, I, I worked for two more years and. Um, I don't know how you can make significant enough amends uh, for 20 years and two, but I did, you know, I, people could see that I was different and I wished that I could have been there and been so functional for the company, not been the problem, but the solution. And I wasn't, but the thing is, is uh, when, um, when they talked about at the end, there are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. Why not? They have a new attitude, and they've been saved from a living death. And in the end, that was definitely me. I was just more efficient. Uh, I was better at what I did. But it also translated into my life. You know, I I didn't realize that I'd been spending pretty much all my time thinking about food um, of what I was going to eat or I was in my head or planning a binge or feeling bad about a binge or hung over from a binge. And when I put the food down, I could not believe how much time I had. And with that time, uh, I was, uh, I came along around 54 or 55 years old and I picked up the violin and started to play the violin for the first time. And I went back to sewing and why did why did I have this interest? It's because I finally had time, and it's just what they're talking about here. I mean, we can we can be so productive. All that time that I was crazy in my head was gone, and I could be productive at the workplace and in my own life. And I'm very grateful that that's still true now. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Sylvia. Paula, and thank you, Sylvia. Even waiting in line, it's a pleasure for I hear so much here. I want to go just to one line here. When we started this chapter, it was to the employers. And I want to go back just for a moment to bring us forward. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What irony. I became an alcoholic myself, and but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. So now we go on, and we go on to this page at 149, and it says here, we believe that managers of large enterprises often have little idea how prevalent this problem is. We're seeing the difference today. 
Today we're seeing it visibly. We're seeing it in the in the medical uh, insurances that are, the diabetes is on the rise. We're seeing obesity. We're seeing chairs that are being changed in hospital beds that their weight, so how much weight they can hold, being increased. Surgeries that were unheard of before are common day today. It says it might pay to take another look down the line. So I I guess we're coming down the line. But I want to go down here, too, also mindful, as was spoken, of time. As to them, his policy is undoubtedly sound. This is a sound. You don't eat. we got an exercise gym for you. My goodness, you can do that. But he did not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic, between such people and the compulsive overeater. You know, I want to end with, as was read here, what a beautiful ending. And this is the man that wrote before that became the alcoholic. Today I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. But look at that. He asks the question, but why not? But why not? They have a new attitude, and they have been saved from a living death. Can you imagine? But this is the part. I have enjoyed every moment. Not, oh, what a trial it's been. Oh, my goodness, I have to give up my time. I have to speak with this one. I have to be with that one. I have enjoyed every moment. It's not that what it says in working with others. The first page, to be helpful is our only aim. It seems he aimed well. Thank you for allowing me to share with that. I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Suji? Suji, you're next. Hi, it's Suji, a grateful, recovered uh, member of OA from Pennsylvania, still in Massachusetts and still not talking too much, I hope, to my daughter. But thank you all for being that so I can talk to you, my friends in OA, visionaries. So here we are. I, these couple of pages here, they've got it all. They've got several several stages, the, the employers just like us or just like us and our families, that that they have stages of understanding. So we have the first employer who says, the junior exec yet, he's not even the employer. He says, look here, Ed, do you want to stop drinking or not? You put me on the spot every time you get drunk. It isn't fair to me or the firm. So he, he gets it that there's this problem of, and that it has to do with fairness and that it has to do with accept the problem. And then there's the next guy, the junior executive, who might not agree with the contents of our book. And since he doesn't get the book, he probably shouldn't be sharing it with the alcoholic because he won't have the right angle on it. But at least he will understand the problem and will no longer be misled by ordinary promises. At least he's got something of step one in his understanding, his step one as an employer, that there is a problem. He doesn't have step two, but he's got step one, and he can be of some help. Then there's the guy who says, I don't see how you can be of any help to us, as you, for as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problems. Which reminds me of a friend of mine who worked for Amtrak, and 
and uh, his part of his service and his addiction was to let his employers know that uh, there were lots of people uh, uh, drinking and using on the job and that they needed to know that it was there. But not everyone accepts that. And even if the employer is in denial about the problem, they might help some people, the so-called whoopee drinker or whatever. But, but the whoopee drinker, we know, if we really understand our problem, that's the person who may very well be on the road to becoming an alcoholic. And and that person needs help, too. So at least this, that some kind of recognition does, does help, even if it's not helping us with a more chronic form of our disease of overeating or alcoholism or whatever. And then, then the end of this, they have a new attitude. They have been saved from a living death. I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. Well, that's great. And that's, that's, that's step one and step two, that, that uh, when, you, when you accept and accept the solution, then you can move on and do something effective with your life. But whatever happens, whatever the other person is willing or not willing to do. I am willing to do something for myself. And by being something of a, a struggling, messed up, living example of what to do about having a problem, I, I may be able to influence things for the better. So I, I love this. I think it, it just reiterates in every way these steps as they apply or could apply to anyone. And it's, it's, I don't believe that it's just our fellowship that helps us. Not at all. Any any person who understands their own limitations can help another person. And that's the gift of the 12-step recovery, that we understand our own limitations and we don't try to beg off responsibility with it. We accept the responsibility that we have because we know if you understand the problem is, then you really need a spiritual recovery because then you're responsible and you have to figure out what to do with your understanding. It's much easier to not understand and just bury your head in the sand, but we know what kind of lives we had when we did that with the food, and we don't want to do it anymore. Thanks for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Suji. Mary, I didn't catch your last initial. Yes, this is Mary T. in Vermont. Hi, Mary. Go ahead. I just wanted to comment that this reading makes me think a lot about. Um, excuse me, large truck. Makes me think a lot about my belief and what I've heard from many others that compulsive overeating was only affecting myself. And I think back about when I was in the workplace, and um, I just was either really up obsessed with food and what might be in the break room, or I was riddled with fear, or I was trying to snatch everything I could get out of the show, and I was not productive. Um, and that's all I wanted to share on that. Thank you. Thank you, Mary T. Kim? Rebecca, did you say my name? It's Kim. I did. Okay. Sorry, I was on mute. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm going to pick up on that line. He, he, meaning the employer, might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism was costing his organization a year. I have to say, not only are the employers shocked, but I think our country would be shocked. I think most compulsive overeaters would be shocked because we're so good 
at, at thinking that we're so different from alcoholism. And just, you know, personally, you know, I came, became recovered four years ago. On average, I was probably late to work like three or four times a month. I haven't been late to work since I've recovered because I can get up in the morning and not feel groggy from the bench. You know, I used to be out sick, you know, three, four times a year for like three or four days. I have not been out sick since I've recovered because now that I'm eating healthily and I'm, and I'm taking care of myself and my body, I don't get sick anymore. You know, I think to myself how many times after lunch, because I would have binge, that I was so groggy and sleepy I could barely do my work. You know, but we like to think we're so different than the compulsive overeaters, I mean, than the alcoholics. The other one I think of is I have a very dear friend that is morbidly obese. She's probably 350 to 400 pounds. Her dream was always to be a nurse. And she went through, in her, in her 40s, she went through two years of science classes at a community college. And when she went to apply to nursing school, to her credit, they were honest with her and they said that if she was at that weight, she would be unable to do the job of a, of a floor nurse. And they didn't want to waste her time having her take classes and pay all this money if she could not do the job. I mean, what a difficult thing for a school to say because they're profit-driven. But that was something my friend needed to hear because she couldn't be a nurse. She could not do the job of a floor nurse at 400 pounds. And then I think of the cost. I mean, what is one of the biggest problems we have today is health care costs. That's all over the news, the cost of health care and how it's crippling this nation. And we think, think about all the, and I'm not saying everyone that's obese is a compulsive overeater, and not everyone who has these problems is, reduced, is because of compulsive overeating, but a lot of us have to recognize that a lot of our illnesses are secondary to our compulsive overeating. So just wanted to list a few. What about fertility issues? I know girls that are anorexic that don't have their periods and can't get pregnant. I know girls that are so obese that their periods are so messed up that they can't get pregnant. When you're underweight, osteoporosis becomes a big problem. I have sponsees from their bulimia that are paying thousands and thousands of dollars for dental work. What about diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, knee replacement, bariatric surgery, the cost of scooters, those are all things that are secondary to our compulsive overeating. Paula touched on it. The number of big boy beds. My friend's a doctor, and she talks about the fact that they can't keep enough big boy beds in the hospital because people's weights keep going up. I attended a funeral last year that had to be delayed because they had to order an extra large coffin. They could not find a coffin to fit the gentleman that died in his 60s. I think of a story that I heard on CNN where a young man in his late 20s was 800 pounds, called 911, and they had to cut him out of his house. And they interviewed a special EMT unit that has been put together because they're getting one to two to three phone calls a month with people with such morbid obesity that they had to make a special ambulance and special beds and special training. I think of a something in the news in the five years ago in Philadelphia where someone needed an MRI and they had to take him to the Philadelphia Zoo because there was not an MRI machine that was big enough. You know, we like to think we're so different than alcoholics, but I am shocked. And employers are shocked to end up with that. He might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism, compulsive overeating is costing this organization, this country, 
our families, and ourselves every single year. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Our time is up. And so I will thank you all that you shared. We will close someone's coughing with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Lauren S. please read A Vision for You? Our book is going to be successful. Yes. Okay. Yes, this is Lauren S., as in Sam, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own health is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, 